Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 103rd edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is data breach lawyers, a view from the trenches. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor. We'd like to thank PINow.com. If you need a private investigator you can trust, visit PINow.com to learn more. Our guest today is Darius Davenport, a partner and chairman of the Cybersecurity and Data Privacy Practice Group of Crenshaw, Warren Martin. His practice focuses on data privacy laws and regulations, helping clients mitigate cyber risk and dealing with illegal and practical problems resulting from cyber incidents. His cybersecurity counsel to businesses and municipalities includes drafting and review of incident response plans, cybersecurity employee policies, technology contracts, and conducting cybersecurity and breach response exercises. It's great to have you with us today, Darius. Well, Sharon, John, I really appreciate you all inviting me to take part in the uh, program today. Well, we are thrilled you're here, and uh, by way of informing the audience, Darius and I have worked together on a special committee of the uh, Virginia State Bar uh, examining the future of law practice, uh, and that's how we got to know each other, uh, and it's been a great pleasure working with you, Darius. So tell us, if you would, a little bit about the work you're doing now on data breaches and privacy law in your law firm, and of course, please tell us uh, how our listeners can contact you. Wait, I think John's introduction was, was great as far as kind of giving a big picture of the work that we do here at the firm. But, you know, one of the things I like to say is that we provide scalable legal cybersecurity and data privacy solutions through our incident response plans, our employee policies, tabletop exercises, and employee training. And it's also important to note that because they are scalable, they're also cost-effective and they're accessible to every level of business. And so if anyone has any questions, you know, please, they can contact me at ddavenport at cwm-law.com. And also because data incidents, you know, you never know when they're going to occur. We have a cybersecurity data incident hotline on our firm, and you can reach us at 757-802-9043. Well, Darius, the last I looked, we really didn't have uh, cybersecurity, cyber law, whatever you want to call it, specialty, or at least uh, uh, within law school. But and most lawyers certainly didn't start out, you know, practicing that. So what, what kind of law did, I'm assuming you didn't do that, but what kind of law did you, you practice originally? And, and how did you move into this, this whole brand new world of data breach and privacy law? Well, you know, there's probably maybe a six-step process. And first, you know, and foremost, you know, I was started my legal career as an Army JAG. And, you know, what that did for me, I was practicing, I was a special assistant U.S. attorney, and I also did a lot of administrative law for the Army JAG Corps. But what it did, it allowed me to, you know, begin to practice in a secure computing environment. And even though at that time I wasn't even really aware of it. So that gave me a little bit of a background and framework of, of what a secure computing environment looked like in the workplace. But, you know, after the JAG Corps, when I began to 
enter private practice again. I did some maritime law, and I was a public sector attorney, and also did some work working with a lot of our business clients here at Crenshaw Warren Martin. As we kind of moved through the process, I began to explore some new practice areas and looking for areas that you know were going to be growth and areas that could take our law firm into uh, into the future. And one of the areas where we saw growth was in the technology area. And I think a lot of times when we think of technology, we think about things like patent law. But really, um, you know, there were areas that I found interesting when it came to areas of data privacy and security. And that meshed up well with my general love for computers in law school. I had to build my computer during my first year of law school. And I consider myself kind of a member of the uh, the DOS generation because, you know, when I began to, you know, use computers, you know, we were still, you know, typing in, you know, DOS commands. And so to kind of have that background of, you know, understanding what's running in the background of, of Windows when things like breaches, uh, when they became kind of more prominent in the headlines, also kind of tying that in with the nexus of privacy and security. Around the same time, you know, we started to realize that when it comes to the modern business, the modern business, its value oftentimes is, is in its data. Uh, a few years ago when we transferred, you know, our IT companies in our, for our firm, you know, I was looking at two four terabyte uh, hard drives, and our whole law firm was basically on those two drives. And so anything that threatens our data also is a threat to business. And so we started with our firm, you know, seeing what we could do to increase our cyber hygiene, our cybersecurity. And then after we started with our firm, we completed that process as far as drafting plans and employee policies and getting those things in place and, and training everyone. We said this is the same kind of service that we need to be able to provide to our clients as businesses you know, in the local Hampton Roads area. Hmm. Well, Darius, you're a man after my own heart. The ne- next time you come up here to visit, um, I'm going to fire up my IBM Model 18 Model 239 <laughs> that has that that has that 30 megabyte drive in it, uh, and and we'll we'll practice DOS commands together. <laughs> I'll serve the beer, but I am otherwise out of this 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 little party. <laughs> uh, Darius, a lot of times as John and I travel around, we get lawyers asking us about um, how to incorporate data breach law and privacy law in their practices. What suggestions do you have for them? Well, I think, you know, the major suggestion that I have, you know, first and foremost is to begin to study. Um, And that study kind of breaks down maybe into three different uh, buckets. The first is just kind of getting an understanding of the technology that's in play. Um, And that can be just, you know, basic computing. If you have clients that have certain or special computing or IT needs, just kind of getting an understanding of the technology and even the technology that's associated with typical, traditional, modern data breaches. That's number one. But I think number two is getting a fundamental understanding of, you know, what breach response means, what it equals. You know, how does the breach response process play out? And I think there are you know, a lot of great resources from NIST that kind of 
spell out, you know, these are some of the steps that you would take. They have an incident handling guidebook that, you know, you could kind of begin to study some of those breach response techniques. But then also there's the law because cybersecurity, it really grows out of privacy law. And so when you look at a data breach, you're really dealing with a, a breach of some aspect of privacy law. And when you look at the law, you know, there's a whole new myriad of opportunities because there's medical, there's education, there's children, there's financial, there's online, there's banking, there are industry-specific regulations that someone may be dealing with, there's telecom, there's workplace, there's Internet of Things. And then there are those, there are those things that we don't even know that are coming down the pipeline that we're not even aware of. And so... You know, those kind of the, the major three buckets of study, technology, breach response, and then all the various areas of law. Uh, personally, kind of when I got involved in it, as a veteran, the VA was offering a online Carnegie Mellon course. And that's where I began to learn things about, you know, like, you know, the CIA triad of confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And that's where I picked up, you know, a lot of the the NIST security framework of identity, protect, detect, respond, and recover. And for those who want to, uh, you know, add data privacy as, as a practice group or as a specialty, there are a lot of great conferences out there as well. You know, the uh, Defense Research Institute, they do an annual conference, and that's where I first met some individuals who were doing cybersecurity and data privacy work at very high levels. Um, there's also the advising conference, which kind of brings a mix of insurance professionals who are kind of in the cyber insurance marketplace and those high-end attorneys that are doing some data privacy work, as well as net diligence. And then also, kind of as I mentioned before, because, you know, cybersecurity has its underpinnings and, and privacy, there's also uh, IAPP, the uh, International Association of Privacy Professionals. So, so those are some really great resources for anyone who's uh, interested in getting their feet wet in the field of data privacy and security. Can you talk a little bit and for our listeners about the reasons that you're most often called by potential clients and what kind of work is involved in that? Sure. One of the reasons why a lot of times we get involved with some of our clients is because there an incident has taken place, some kind of data incident. Uh, whether it be a data breach or some other unspecified data incident like a like a ransomware attack. Um, and typically, the first things that we're trying to do is to respond to that incident and then recover. One of the things that I, I don't think businesses fully appreciate is that, you know, if your computer systems go down, if your data has been ransomed, or if your data has been erased, you can no longer do business. And, you know, the time that it takes for you to recover, you know, that is a lot of lost productivity as far as your organization is concerned. And so one of the things that we try to do is, is to get people back up and running as soon as possible. Then I think the next thing is making a legal determination as to whether a data breach has actually occurred. And I distinguish between a data incident and a data breach because, you know, a data incident could be something like a ransomware attack where you've just been denied access to your, your data. But a data breach by most state laws equals, you know, that 
personally identifiable information has been stolen from your organization, and then malicious actors likely will use that information uh, in nefarious ways. And so if a data breach occurs, then notifications need to take place. And so one of the things we do is work with data forensics companies to determine did data or more specifically personal information leave the organization where now we need to do notify individuals who may have been affected by that actual breach. Then I think, you know, a little later on, because a lot of times these data incidents or breaches, they originate with employees. About 25% of data breaches are caused by employees. And so there may be some follow-on employee discipline that needs to take place and that you kind of have a, an employment law nexus associated with that. But then also, depending on the client's industry, there may be some regulatory compliance issues that need to be dealt with. Uh, I had a client not too long ago. They do some financial services work, and because of a ransomware attack, you know, several months of client data was missing when the regulators came. And then we had to work with the regulators to kind of, you know, craft the right message to describe what happened and um, satisfy what they wanted from the organization from a regulatory perspective. Then kind of what happens oftentimes is that, you know, once we're able to work through the incident, then that organization says they see the light and they say, hey, now we need to do some incident response planning. And that's when we get into drafting incident response plans, drafting employee policies, tabletop exercises, and the like. Thank you. That That's very helpful. Can you tell us a little bit about how you stay up with the complexities of data breach law with all the different laws in different states and the European Union, et cetera? If you could just tell us briefly how you achieve that magic, that would be very helpful. <laughs> well, you know, I think one of the things I already mentioned, so the conferences, the conferences are great. Because oftentimes, you know, what you will you'll find, you'll have in, individuals from the EU who are practicing who will come over and they will give us, you know, the firsthand um, perspective of the issues uh, related to, uh, you know, GDPR that we need to be made aware of. And it's kind of tricky sometimes because it's European, it's in English, but the language usage is a little different. And so, um, <laughs> you you think? So yes, we, we we have a lot of trouble with that. <laughs> you, you mean it's but, not scheduled? <laughs> <laughs> we we were just teasing our friends this morning about that. <laughs> so you know, when someone can kind of sit down and explain it to you, you know that's very helpful. But then I think they're just, you know, I think anything from podcasts and just doing a lot of internet research, those are some of the things that, that I do to kind of stay abreast because it's an area of the law that's very fluid and rapidly changing. So information, you know, becomes stale quickly. So you, you got to constantly kind of stay on top of it. You're preaching to the choir. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. 
Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is Data Breach Lawyers, A View from the Trenches. Our guest today is Darius Davenport, a partner and chairman of the Cybersecurity and Data Privacy Practice Group of Crenshaw, Ware, and Martin. Well, Darius, I think you touched a little bit on this next question uh, in the first part of our podcast, but... We get involved as well as a forensics company in analyzing these data breaches, and and we know how tricky these things can get. But what kind of pointers do you give your clients about that? You know, I think the first and most important pointer is to call your data counsel first. You know, one of the things that you want to do, you want to get a good data forensics company engaged and working on your, your matter. But you want that data forensics firm to be engaged by your data counsel. One of the things that's so important is that once your data counsel initiates that investigation, it's then an investigation that's cloaked by attorney-client privilege. And so that's going to delay you know, a, an organization having to turn over basically the playbook of everything that you did wrong as an institution in the event you face uh, litigation because of that particular data incident. And so one of the things, you know, don't call your IT guy, you know, call data counsel. Another thing, you know, when it comes to IT people, understanding that your regular IT guy is not a data forensics or a data security professional. I've seen situations where the IT guy has been called and the IT guy starts wiping hard drives and basically des- destroying evidence as far as, you know, what actually happened. And so that's another reason why you want to call your data counsel first because, you know, it begins the evidence collection process because, depending on you know, what has happened, you may need to engage law enforcement. And law enforcement, whether it be the FBI or, or whoever, Homeland Security, you know, they are going to need good, well-collected evidence. And IT guys, with their best intentions, sometimes they can begin to destroy uh, critical evidence. So you know, I think it's important to start that incident response or really that relationship with IT and your your data counsel because it can be a little contentious because your your IT guys sometimes a data breach or a data incident they look at that as like a failure when it's not really a failure on their part because people are really working hard to you know compromise systems but they need to understand that you know when something does happen that's bad they need to quickly, freely, and openly cooperate with data counsel as, as they come in to assist the situation. And even the data forensics company that's now kind of looking over their shoulder to figure out what went wrong. You know, one more tip, I think, is just to prioritize the critical data because, you know, you want to be able to have a roadmap for that data forensics firm to say, okay, hey, look, you know, if you can save anything, this is the critical data that I need you to save and this is the data that we need to restore first so that we can kind of either get people back to work or these are the critical projects that are pending that we need to kind of get back you know, up and moving. So I think those are some quick um, tips for responding to some of the tricky aspects of, of a data breach. Do you find most of the time when you deal with your clients that they are well and truly covered by cyber insurance or not so much? And why do you think your findings are what they are? Well, you know, clients generally aren't covered by cyber insurance. 
And I think probably the big reason why is, one, they don't know what their cyber insurance options are. Oftentimes, in the recovery phase of working a data incident, that's when discussions about cyber insurance come up. You know, a board will now require the company to to get insurance, and that's when they begin to investigate cyber insurance options. But then once they investigate those options, oftentimes it's confusing, and, and it's also costly as well. And so the confusion, the cost, and the lack of information about just the availability of the products that are out there, I think those are some of the major challenges. And even because unlike a lot of other standard forms of insurance, when you look at cyber insurance coverage, there there are no standard forms. And so it's a, very much the wild, wild west where you have companies that are offering products and sometimes you get what you pay for. And so it can be very challenging. And that's one of the things we try to help our clients is navigate some of the uh, pitfalls of purchasing cyber insurance. Well, we've always said that clients who have incident response plans are far better off. And I think hearing you so far today, I'm assuming you agree with that. And we certainly hope so. But can you tell our listeners why having that incident response plan is a better choice up front? You know, you are definitely far better off if you have an incident response plan. An incident response plan is going to do several things for you. So first, it's going to identify all of the players, all the people that need to be involved in that particular incident response. Then once all those individuals are identified, it's going to assign responsibility. It's so much more difficult once you have a live incident that's taking place to round everyone up and assign responsibility to individuals. It's just so much more challenging. And it's also going to outline the communication plan. You know, who needs to make what kind of communication internally? Who's going to be the spokesperson, you know, for external communication? But then also it's going to define the different kinds of incidents as well because you're going to, you know, respond very differently to a, a data breach where information has left the organization versus a ransomware attack where information most likely didn't leave, but you're denied access to that information. So those are probably the four major reasons why, you know, incident response plans are important. But then, you know, when you don't have a plan in place, you're going to waste time. You know, that waste of time is going to, you know, possibly increase a ransom if that ransom continues to grow as time elapses. And also, if you're wasting time figuring out how to respond, it's ultimately going to lead into a loss of productivity. I've had certain clients where literally they've had to start you know, sending employees home because they couldn't clean their offices anymore and they couldn't straighten up anymore because you know after one, two, three weeks of being down, there was just nothing else for the employees to do. And then you're paying folks that can't work. Definitely, incident response plans are the way to go. We certainly agree. We were asked all the time to emphasize that and to lecture on that particular topic. Tell us what you think, Darius, are some of the mistakes you see the clients who have been breached. What kind of mistakes are they making the most often? What's the most common thing? Well, I think probably two things. One, a lot of clients are not patching. So there are vulnerabilities that could be easily fixed that are left unchecked and which can lead to compromise. And I think number two, probably, they're not training their employees. 50% of these incidents are caused by malicious actors. 25% roughly 
by system failures. But then the 25% that we can really control is employees that are causing these incidents. And they're not doing it intentionally. They're making mistakes or they're being tricked. And so it just makes sense to train employees because that's the one sector that you can you have the most control over. So Darius, crystal ball time. Any predictions <laughs> that you that you have for the future of data breach and privacy law? And and, and I'm sure you're you're not going to say that we're going to have a a federal data breach notification. So I, I'm pretty sure of that. But uh, <laughs> what, <laughs> but but what what are some of your predictions for the future? Well, yeah, I think you know a federal data breach notification law. I think that's on my on my wish list. A quick antidote. You know, there was a simple incident we thought until we found this spreadsheet that had. Uh, about 15, 20 folks on it from various states with social security numbers and um, driver's license numbers. You know, and so something simple quickly turned into now we have to research, you know, about 20 different states, their notification laws. So that's why that remains on my my wish list. Um, But I I think one of the things that we'll see, we'll probably see more um, state laws that will continue to modify their breach notification laws more toward the California model, which is a little bit more European. And, you know, we may even see the U.S. adopting more of a, of a European data privacy protection mindset, whereas, you know, in the U.S., data is money, you know, I think. But in Europe, data is truly private because they have a different history with personal information being used against the people uh, within those various countries. And so I think they have a different understanding of of personal information and uh, how important it is to the individual. So I guess not as much crystal ball, but more more of a wish list, I guess. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And it's anybody's guess. One thing I think we can all be sure of and is that in the near future, absolutely nothing will be passed as a federal law that impacts any of this. <laughs> <laughs> you you can take you can take that to the bank. I agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> well, we sure want to thank you for being our guest today. It's always fun to have uh, one of our friends and colleagues on the show, and this was very very helpful. I'm sure for a lot of folks who've heard from us on forensics, and they've heard from other people on other aspects of cybersecurity, but they have not heard in general from too many cybersecurity or data breach or rather lawyers. Uh, one or two along the way. And it's been a long, long road, hasn't it, John? Yes, yes. (laughs) We're very happy to have you on the show. So thank you for taking the time out of your day. Sharon and John, I greatly appreciate the invitation. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.